Letter Nine, Part Two of A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains by Isabella L. Bird, Part Two of Letter Nine. Longmount, Colorado, October twentieth. The island valley of Avalon is left, but how shall I finally tear myself from its freedom and enchantments? I see Long's snowy peak rising into the night sky, and know and long after the magnificence of the blue hollow at its base. We were to have left at eight, but the horses were lost, so it was nine-thirty before we started, the we being the musical young French-Canadian and myself. I have a bay Indian pony, Bertie, a little beauty, with legs of iron, fast, enduring, gentle, and wise, and with luggage for some weeks, including a black silk dress, behind my saddle. I am tolerably independent. It was a most glorious ride. We passed through the gates of rock, through gorges where the unsunned snow lay deep under the lemon-colored aspens caught glimpses of far-off snow-clad giants rising into a sky of deep sad blue lunched above the foothills at a cabin where two brothers and a hired man were keeping bock where everything was so trim clean and ornamental that one did not miss a woman crossed a deep backwater on a narrow beaver dam because the log bridge was broken down and emerged from the brilliantly colored canyon of the saint brain just at dusk upon the featureless prairies, when we had some trouble in finding Longmount in the dark. A hospitable welcome awaited me at this inn, and an English friend came in and kept the evening with me. Great Platte Canyon, October 23rd My letters on this tour will, I fear, be very dull, for after riding all day, looking after my pony, getting supper, hearing about various routes, and the pastoral, agricultural, mining, and hunting gossip of the neighborhood, I am so sleepy and wholesomely tired that I can hardly write. I left Longmount pretty early on Tuesday morning, the day being sad, with the blink of an impending snowstorm in the air. The evening before, I was introduced to a man who had been a colonel in the rebel army, who made a most unfavorable impression upon me and it was a great annoyance to me when he presented himself on horseback to guide me over the most intricate part of the journey. Solitude is infinitely preferable to uncongeniality, and is bliss when compared with repulsiveness, so I was thoroughly glad when I got rid of my escort and set out upon the prairie alone. It is a dreary ride of thirty miles over the low brown plains to Denver, very little settled, and with trails going in all directions. My sailing orders were steer south and keep to the best beaten track, and it seemed like embarking on the ocean without a compass. The rolling brown waves on which you see a horse a mile and a half off impress one strangely, and at noon the sky darkened up for another storm. The mountains swept down in blackness to the plains, and the higher peaks took on a ghastly grimness horrid to behold. It was first very cold, then very hot, and finally settled down to a fierce east-windy cold. 
difficult to endure. It was free and breezy, however, and my horse was companionable. Sometimes herds of cattle were browsing on the sun-cured grass, then herds of horses. Occasionally I met a horseman with a rifle lying across his saddle, or a wagon of the ordinary sort, but oftener I saw a wagon with a white tilt, of the kind known as a prairie schooner, laboring across the grass, or a train of them, accompanied by herds, mules, and horsemen, bearing immigrants and their household goods in dreary exodus from the western states to the much-vaunted prairies of Colorado. The host and hostess of one of these wagons invited me to join their midday meal. I provided tea, which they had not tasted for four weeks, and they hominy. They had been three months on the journey from Illinois, and their oxen were so lean and weak that they expected to be another month in reaching Wet Mountain Valley. They had buried a child en route, had lost several oxen, and were rather out of heart. Owing to their long isolation and the monotony of the march, they had lost count of events, and seemed like people of another planet. They wanted me to join them, but their rate of travel was too slow, so we parted with mutual expressions of good will, and as their white tilt went hull down, in the distance on the lonely prairie sea, I felt sadder than I often feel on taking leave of old acquaintances. That night they must have been nearly frozen, camping out in the deep snow in the fierce wind. I met afterwards two thousand lean Texan cattle, herded by three wild-looking men on horseback, followed by two wagons containing women, children, and rifles. They had traveled one thousand miles. Then I saw two prairie wolves, like jackals, with gray fur, cowardly creatures, which fled from me with long leaps. The windy cold became intense, and for the next eleven miles I rode a race with the coming storm. At the top of every prairie roll I expected to see Denver, but it was not till nearly five that from a considerable height I looked down upon the great city of the plains, the metropolis of the territories. There the great braggart city lay spread out, brown and treeless, upon the brown and treeless plain, which seemed to nourish nothing but wormwood and the Spanish bayonet. The shallow plat, shriveled into a narrow stream, with a shingly bed six times too large for it, and fringed by shriveled cottonwood, wound along by Denver, and two miles up its course I saw a great sandstorm, which in a few minutes covered the city, blotting it out with a dense brown cloud. Then, with gust of wind, the snowstorm began, and I had to trust entirely to Bertie's sagacity for finding Evans' shanty. She had been there once before only, but carried me direct to it over rough ground and trenches. Gleefully, Mrs. Evans and the children ran out to welcome the pet pony, and I was received most hospitably, and made warm and comfortable, though the house consists only of a kitchen and two bed-closets. My budget of news from the park had to be brought out constantly, and I wondered how much I had to tell. It was past eleven when we breakfasted the next morning. It was cloudless and an intense frost, with six inches of snow on the ground, and everybody thought it too cold to get up and light the fire. I had intended to leave Bertie at Denver, but ex-Governor Hunt and Mr. Byers of the Rocky Mountain News 
Both advised me to travel on horseback, rather than by train and stage, telling me that I should be quite safe, and ex-Governor Hunt drew out a route for me, and gave me a circular letter to the settlers among it. Denver is no longer the Denver of Hepworth Dixon. A shooting affray in the street is as rare as in Liverpool, and one no longer sees men dangling to the lamp-post when one looks out in the morning. It is a busy place, the entrepot, and distributing point for an immense district, with good shops, some factories, fair hotels, and the usual deformities and refinements of civilization. Peltry shops abound, and sportsman, hunter, miner, teamster, immigrant, can be completely rigged out at fifty different stores. At Denver, people who come from the east to try the camp cure, now so fashionable, get their outfit of wagon, driver, horses, tent, bedding, and stove, and start for the mountains. Asthmatic people are there in such numbers as to warrant the holding of an asthmatic convention, of patients cured and benefited. Numbers of invalids who cannot bear the rough life of the mountain fill its hotels and boarding-houses, and others who have been partially restored by a summer of camping out go into the city in the winter to complete the cure. It stands at a height of five thousand feet, on an enormous plain, and has a most glorious view of the rocky range. I should hate even to spend a week there. The sight of those glories so near, and yet out of reach, would make me nearly crazy. Denver is at present the terminus of the Kansas Pacific Railroad. It has a line connecting it with the Union Pacific Railroad at Cheyenne, and by means of the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad, open for about two hundred miles, it is expecting to reach into Mexico. It has also had the enterprise, by means of another narrow-gauge railroad, to push its way right up into the mining districts near Gray's Peak. The number of saloons in the streets impresses one, and every one meets the characteristic loafers of a frontier town, who find it hard even for a few days or hours to submit to the restraints of civilization, as hard as I did to ride sidewise to ex-Governor Hunt's office. To Denver, men go to spend the savings of months of hard work in the maddest dissipation, and there such characters as Comanche Bill, Buffalo Bill, Wild Bill, and Mountain Jim go on the spree and find the kind of notoriety they seek. A large number of Indians added to the Harlequin appearance of the Denver streets the day I was there. They belonged to the Ute tribe, through which I had to pass and ex-Governor Hunt introduced me to a fine-looking young chief, very well-dressed in beaded hide, and bespoke his courtesy for me if I needed it. The Indian stores and fur stores and fur depots interested me most. The crowds in the streets, perhaps owing to the snow on the ground, were almost solely masculine. I only saw five women the whole day. There were men in every rig, hunters and trappers in buckskin clothing, men of the plains with belts and revolvers, in great blue cloaks, relics of the war, teamsters in leathern suits, horsemen in fur coats and caps and buffalo-hide boots with the hair outside, and camping blankets behind their huge Mexican saddles, Broadway dandies in light kid gloves, rich English sporting tourists, clean, comely, and supercilious-looking, 
and hundreds of Indians on their small ponies, the men wearing buckskin suits sewn with beads, and red blankets, with faces painted vermilion, and hair hanging lank and straight, and squaws, much bundled up, riding astride with furs over their saddles. Town tired and confused me, and in spite of Mrs. Evans' kind hospitality, I was glad when a man brought Bertie at nine yesterday morning. He said she was a little demon. She had done nothing but buck, and had bucked him off on the bridge. I found that he had put a curb on her, and whenever she dislikes anything, she resents it by bucking. I rode sidewise, till I was well through the town, long enough to produce a severe pain in my spine, which was not relieved for some time, even after I had changed my position. It was a lovely Indian summer day, so warm that the snow on the ground looked an incongruity. I rode over the plains for some time, then gradually reaching the rolling country along the base of the mountains, and a stream with cottonwoods along it, and settlers' houses about every half-mile. I passed and met wagons frequently, and picked up a muff containing a purse with five hundred dollars in it, which I afterwards had the great pleasure of restoring to the owner. Several times I crossed the narrow track of the quaint little Rio Grande Railroad, so that it was a very cheerful ride. Ranch, Plum Creek, October 24th You must understand that in Colorado travel, unless on the main road and in the larger settlements, there are neither hotels nor taverns, and that it is the custom for the settlers to receive travelers, charging them at the usual hotel rate for accommodation. It is a very satisfactory arrangement. However, at Ranch, my first halting-place, the host was unwilling to receive people in this way, I afterwards found, or I certainly should not have presented my credentials at the door of a large frame house, with large barns and a generally prosperous look. The host, who opened the door, looked repellent but his wife, a very agreeable, ladylike-looking woman, said that they could give me a bed on a sofa. The house was the most pretentious I have yet seen, being papered and carpeted, and there were two hired girls. There was a lady there from Laramie, who kindly offered to receive me into her room, a very tall, elegant person, remarkable as being the first woman who had settled in the Rocky Mountains. She had been trying the camp cure for three months, and was then on her way home. She had a wagon with beds, tent, tent floor, cooking stove, and every camp luxury, a light buggy, a man to manage everything, and a most superior hired girl. She was consumptive and frail in strength, but a very attractive person, and her stories of the perils and limitations of her early life at Fort Laramie were very interesting. Still, I wearied, as I had arrived early in the afternoon, and could not out of politeness retire and write to you. At meals, the three hired men and two hired girls eat with the family. I soon found that there was a screw loose in the house, and was glad to leave early the next morning, although it was obvious that a storm was coming on. I saw the toy car of the Rio Grande Railroad whirl past, all cushioned and warmed, and rather wished I were in it, and not out among the snow on the bleak hillside. I only got on four miles, when the storm came on so badly that I got into a kitchen where eleven wretched travellers were taking shelter, 
with the snow melting on them and dripping on the floor. I had learned the art of being agreeable so well at the Chalmers, and practiced it so successfully during the two hours I was there, by paring potatoes and making scones, that when I left, though the host kept an accommodation house for travellers, they would take nothing for my entertainment, because they said I was such good company. The storm moderated a little, and at one I saddled Bertie, and rode four more miles, crossing a frozen creek, the ice of which broke and let the pony through, to her great alarm. I cannot describe my feelings on this ride, produced by the utter loneliness, the silence and dumbness of all things, the snow falling quietly without wind, the obliterated mountains, the darkness, the intense cold, and the unusual and appalling aspect of nature. All life was in a shroud, all work and travel suspended. There was not a footmark or wheelmark. There was nothing to be afraid of, and though I can exactly say that I enjoyed the ride, yet there was the pleasant feeling of gaining health every hour. When the snow-darkness began to deepen towards evening, the track became quite illegible, and when I found myself at this romantically situated cabin, I was thankful to find that they could give me shelter. The scene was a solemn one, and reminded me of a description in Whittier's Snowbound. All the stock came round the cabin with mute appeals for shelter. Sheep-dogs got in, and would not be kicked out. Men went out muffled up, and came back shivering and shaking the snow from their feet. The churn was put by the stove. Later on, a most pleasant settler, on his way to Denver, came in, his wagon having been snow-blocked two miles off, where he had been obliged to leave it and bring his horses on here. The gray mare had a stentorian voice, smoked a clay pipe which she passed to her children, raged at English people, derided the courtesy of English manners, and considered that please, thank you, and the like were all bosh, when life was so short and busy. And still the snow fell softly, and the air and earth were silent. End of Letter 9